Good morning, Sunnybrook. My name is Mac Johnson, um, and I have the privilege of talking to you about our Lord today. Um, just real quick, uh, those of you who don't know, my wife and I have been serving in Poland for the last four years. I don't know if you've been paying attention, the last four years have been so boring. Like nothing has happened, like no one's doing anything. Um, so it's been a great time to do church planting where people are supposed to gather and be encouraged um, by the Lord and then like COVID, COVID war happens and you're like, if we could plan the ideal time to do church planting, it would have been 2020, 21, 22, and 23. Um, so we are very blessed with such a fruitful and encouraging ministry over in Poland and it has been an absolute pleasure. Today, I want to uh, really draw our attention onto the text, a text which is just rich with meaning and value for our Christian lives. And so um, I, I'd like to talk uh, just briefly about kind of what's happened before uh, our text today. I hope, uh, hope that's okay. Some of you might not be too familiar with the details of the final week, but um, just so you kind of have an overview, the Gospels are not written as just these very bland telling of events. The Gospels are what we could call weighted history, which means that every gospel has an emphasis, every writer has details that he is bringing to mind, themes he wants you to think about. And the weight of the story is on the emphasis in the final week. So everything that sort of precedes the final week of Jesus' life is pointing towards the events and the themes that the specific author is trying to get you to consider or trying to imprint on your mind. And what John is really about is this great contrast, this philosophical contrast between light and dark. Platonic ideas which, to John and his audience, when we speak of light, we're talking about life. We mean what is safe, what is secure, what is reliable, what does not cause us to stumble. It is the place we ought to live. It is the life we ought to lead. It is everything about what is, if you're probably familiar with the phrase, good in humanity. But John is not really pointing towards humanity when he speaks of light. Light is what gives life to mankind. But on the opposite side of the spectrum, John is very, very clear and at sometimes a little bit uncomfortable with how potent his references are to the darkness. The shadowy area of human existence where all of the deep, secret, evil desires, the chaotic waters in the Hebrew mind go to play. And John, at the beginning of the gospel, begins with a recreation of creation. He retells the cosmic story, but with a Christ-like flavor, which is pretty audacious. Have you ever tried to describe the way the world began and then tried to come up with a new way to do it? John wants us to understand his story in light and dark creation themes. He wants to talk about what is essential to the human experience. 
He wants you to understand and to think and to ponder, what does it really mean to be human? What is our fundamental nature as human beings under Adam? And as he goes over this, if you kind of read through John's gospel very quickly, you will realize at least one thing, that everybody but Jesus in John's gospel is a lunatic and a fool. I mean, there are no good characters. I mean, they're all just like stumbling over themselves like toddlers trying to get to the front of the line. They're just like, I wish I want to do this and I want to do that. And they're just kind of sporadic. And then there's this constant, sort of this beating drum of John's gospel, and that is Jesus. He's the constant. And people think they get him, and then Jesus is like, I don't think you get it. And then people are like, yeah, we don't get it. We don't know what you're talking about. But if you could tell us, that'd be great. And Jesus is this light, this pillar, this constant presence in the Gospel of John that gives life and light to humanity. And where we are is in the darkest hour. We're in the darkest hour of human history. And John says this sort of tongue-in-cheek. As Jesus is sitting with his beloved disciples having his final meal, he looks over to Judas and says, do what you have to do. Judas leaves the presence of the disciples, and John throws in this very sort of off statement. He says, and it was night. And John is bringing to mind what occurs in the darkness. John is bringing to mind and to your attention the idea That the world is in chaos, similar to the chaos prior to God's creation. There's a, a phrase in the Genesis account, and it says, and the Spirit hovered over the waters. Now to us, that's, I don't even know what that means, but to the ancient audience, what it meant was that this God, unlike all other gods, is in control of everything. And John wants us to at least focus for a time on the darkness. He wants us to consider the darkness. He wants us to meditate on what it means that this world that Jesus enters into is a place of chaos. A place where original design has been distorted, where it has been caricatured, where it has betrayed its original intent. And so Jesus goes to the garden to pray in preparation for his crucifixion and his trial, his misunderstandings, and his, uh, and his death and burial resurrection. He goes to Gethsemane. Judas comes with an army. The word is very specific. It means like lots and lots and lots of soldiers. But Jesus has been preaching peace. They come to wage war on the light. And so Jesus is prepared to give his final testimony before the Jewish leaders. We'll just run through the text again, pointing out areas where we need to focus. So John 18, verse 12 through 14, these three verses, it says that the company of soldiers came, the commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus and bound him. So their plan is to put God in chains, which, by the way, that's been our plan since the beginning. When we rebel against God, our idea is that we could somehow limit his ability to influence our lives. So we want to put God in chains. We want to put this truth teller in chains like a criminal. And then first they led him to Annas. Now Annas was the 
patriarch high priest. So he is the daddy, and Caiaphas is the son-in-law. And it's ironic that John calls these two high priests. It really should have some form of quotations, um, because they're not really high priests. Now, they have the office. Um, They have the name tag, right? They have all the fancy schmancy jewels and the hat and the underwear and all that kind of stuff they're supposed to have. Um, but, But they betray the original design. The high priest position is a God-ordained mediator between Israel and the Father. And not just anyone can fulfill this role. It's really important, actually, that Israel learned very early on that not just anyone gets to facilitate the reconciliation between the Father and his people. It has to be through the descendants of Aaron. They are the high priests. And so, if the high priest is not who he ought to be, both according to lineage and character, the entire sacrificial system does nothing. It does nothing because the Father will not allow just anyone to facilitate the reconciliation between his people and himself. He must be according to design. Now, the high priest position, if you're not familiar, was a very politicized position at this time in Israel's history. They had been captured and then become captives, and then they sort of got free, but sort of like a puppet freedom, not really free. And then the position of high priest, well, as all great leadership institutions, it becomes twisted and morphed. And in Israel's day at this time in the first century, highly politicized. So that whoever is the king... He tells the governor, appoint a high priest who will serve our political interests best. Now, that sounds like great politics because it is great politics. You don't appoint someone who will disrupt the order you're trying to create. But if you establish your order in contradiction to God's order, it's just not going to go well for you. And so the high priest position was tossed to and fro to leaders who would serve the bidding of the king or the governor or the emperor. And so it really doesn't do what it was designed to do. It really doesn't get the job done. Now for us, we are so used to thinking in individual terms because Christ comes and he sort of unveils this very... Um, universal level of individuality of the world. But as a community, we recognize and, by the way, rely on the proper person in the proper place. So that if the person in the position God has designed does not do his job, in the Jewish mindset, you cannot be forgiven of your sins. Because how are you going to offer sacrifices if the sacrifice is offered by the wrong person? Or if they ruin your sacrifice by doing it improperly. 
So in other words, in the Israelite world, my faithfulness to the Father is dependent on your faithfulness to your position. You see the problem. But it's been designed this way, not so that Annas and Caiaphas can fill their pockets or can feel like they have meaning and value outside of the God-designed love and affection the Father has for them. God designed them to be servants of the people, and they've twisted it. And they've become self-seeking. And if we just take a really quick step back, and we think about that for a second, doesn't it drive you crazy when institutions become self-seeking? Like, it probably drives every person in this room absolutely nuts when a position designed to serve takes the place as the one to be served. It drives us crazy. And we look at very obvious positions like politics and presidents and people in Congress, etc., and we really get frustrated and we go, can't we just get the bad people out and put the good people in? Yeah, until like how long until the good people become the bad people? Like how do you think the bad people became the bad people? That's because there's a flaw a fundamental flaw. But nonetheless, we become increasingly frustrated as we believe proper institutions will alleviate the friction of this life, right? That's the fundamental false promise of a stable government. If we just create this kind of government and we just have this kind of representation, then, then what? And for how long? There's nothing wrong with institutions. God ordains institutions. However, the problem is, is that the position of leadership, authority, and power, when given to the fallen man, becomes self-seeking, inevitably self-seeking. And so what happens is we have people who want to selflessly educate our children, and they betray their purpose, and they do what they do to gratify their own insecurities, their own ego, and they no longer educate but become indoctrinators, and now we have to tell you how to think or what to think. That's not the purpose of education. It's to expose and to teach people how to think. That's what we are supposed to do as educators, and obviously what's happened in America, it can be quite alarming to people, but it really shouldn't be surprising And so we look at these kinds of things and we go, okay, like this is a new hurdle, this is a thing to deal with, but it is also people to love. Or the obvious one would obviously be politicians, but have you ever thought about the office of children? Like what a child is supposed to be. I mean, God ordained for children to be something to parents. And if you think about it or if you ever had kids, you think, wow, When I have a baby or you meet someone who just had a baby, what are they? They're like beaming. They're exhausted, but they're like, this is the best. This is like, I've never been so excited. And then all the older people are like, yeah, just give it like four months when you don't sleep, right? Listen, it's still fun, okay? We've been trying not to sleep since we were kids. So now that we have kids, we cannot sleep and do what we've wanted to do all along. But, I mean, parents, doesn't it just obliterate your soul when the joy that is due from a child 
turns into that child's disrespect to that child's selfishness, and if not corrected, turns into that child's cursing of his father and mother and complete rejection of all that they have been taught. I mean, that's a betrayal of an office. That's a betrayal of a design. It is not meant to be that way. And so the things which are supposed to give us life, thinking in Genesis terms, bring us pain and suffering, discomfort. It's not fun. Or parents who selfishly raise their kids. And I don't mean in the very obvious way that they try to live vicariously through them. I mean parents who don't have the moral integrity to tell their children the way you're behaving is totally unacceptable in this family and to God. Out of a desire to feel secure or to feel like I'm a good parent or the desire to not, God forbid, we be misunderstood. And we don't tell our children the truth. We can't control anyone's behavior. But if we don't tell children the truth, how do you ever expect them to learn it? And as a parent, if we betray the design of the office, tell me how that's any different than the politician who stuffs their pockets. Isn't it the same mechanism? Isn't it the same fundamental flaw? It is a betrayal of the design. And so when I read this and I hear, well, Annas was high priest, I go, yeah, but not really. And I think Caiaphas was high priest, yeah, but not really. It drives me crazy because it ought not to be that way, right? But it is. It is that way. And it has been. And I hope it doesn't come as a shock to you. It will be that way, until Christ returns and redeems all things. So we don't become cynical. We don't become angry, except for in a righteous anger. We don't lose our self-control. We don't lose our heads. We don't lose our courage. We don't lose hope or faith or any of those things. Just recognize the world for what it is, a place where original design has betrayed its purpose. And the result is that these institutions have a proclivity to turn in on themselves. And it is a dark hour when that happens. But John wants us to know that in the dark hour, the light shone in the darkness. Continuing on, we have a contrast between Simon Peter and Christ's character. Peter denies Christ three times. You can go ahead and throw this up on the screen. Um, I I won't run through it all, but... I'm sure it's, it's in your memory. Peter was a guy who was really ready to kill for Christ, who then found out a couple hours later he wasn't exactly ready to die for Christ. Man, I bet that was actually a revelation for him. Like, I don't think he planned that. I don't think he realized how faithless he was, right? He really thought he was faithful unto death. But it turns out killing for Jesus is quite different than dying for Jesus And you see an intensification of the contrast between humanity and darkness and Christ and his light that he shines. Focusing briefly on Peter, we we recognize that the problem in the institutions is really just the fundamental problem in human beings. 
It's that every human being, given the opportunity, 10 times out of 10, underneath Adam as our ancestor, will look at God and choose ourselves every time. Every single time. Ironically, Peter, in this moment, is doing what we would all say would be normal and natural for the human being. Self-preservation. And ironically, what happens when the human being turns in on self and focuses on self and wants to promote self, it is a complete betrayal of its design. And you cease to be who you were meant to be. You cease to be reflecting the order of creation. How is that the case? Because the Father is not one who seeks himself. The Father has always been loving the Son. It is an outward love that the Father has. It's not an inward love that the Father is needing or lacking any affection. He finds delight and has for eternity affection in the Son. And so the love has always been going out. God is fundamentally selfless in his affections for Christ and for his Son. And when we turn that affection that we are supposed to have, which is supposed to be going in the same direction, outward, and we turn it inward, you're no longer fundamentally who you were meant to be. It is a betrayal of the design. And this sin destroys us. I mean, it shatters us. We are fragmented people. We have wills and desires and then abilities. And the problem with the human condition is that all three of these people seem to be having a meeting and nobody's listening. And it's frustrating as the believer and somewhat disheartening when the things we thought we could do for Christ turn out to be less than maybe what we thought. Like that time you thought you could sing that song but then you opened your mouth and you were like, I am not a singer. I recognize now, outside of the shower, I cannot sing. And we just recognize our humanity in relation to Christ. What happens under Adam is that we are willing to sacrifice everything at the altar of our self-image. We choose ourselves under Adam every time. I will make all kinds of sacrifices to the deity of me. And that's a betrayal of my design. But what's good about this text is that Christ did exactly what he needed to do exactly when he needed to do it. Paul says it this way in Romans 5, 6. He says, but at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That while we were ungodly and not reflecting the appropriate nature, that's when Christ died. In the darkest hour, that's when Christ died. Not when we were at our best or when we had cleaned up or when the sacrifices had washed us away. But in our darkest moment, when the institutions and the individuals betrayed their design, Christ shone in the darkness. While we were enemies, Christ reconciled us to the Father. For the light shone in the darkness, and the darkness has not, nor will ever, overcome the light. 
It has been my conviction and an encouragement to my own soul to meditate on this phrase, Christ would rather die than disobey. Man, I want to be like that. I would want to be the kind of person who would absolutely rather die than disobey the Father. And the desire for that to be the case is absolutely nothing short than a complete and utter miracle. In every single one of your lives, if that phrase at all rings true in your soul, you have experienced a miracle. Because you by design do not desire what is good, but now you have a godly desire. So what is so great? What is so great about this text is this, is that as Peter and the offices and everything in humanity just caricatures and blurs and distorts its original design, Christ is absolutely resolute in his mission. He does not waver for a second. He does not let the circumstances dictate his behavior. He is not intimidated by the fact that his life will be snuffed out. He is not willing to compromise his character. He is not willing to betray his design. He is not willing to be any shred of different than his father. And it's in those moments where he speaks the truth and the light shines brightest in the darkness. But what is absolutely incredible is that that resolution of character has been gifted to the saints. It is that design that God is now weaving in your heart. He is sowing the fragmented portions of your humanity into one in Christ. So that people who would rather choose self now are constantly choosing selfless. Christ in these moments shines brightly and he is something to behold. Totally unwavering. And Christ gifts that to us. And as I've lived a couple more years since I was in high school, I have come to realize that the words predestined to be conformed into the image of Christ means something like this. Your holiness and sanctification has a gravity to it. There is an uncontrollable draw to holiness in the lives of the saints. So that should you abide in him all the days of your life, he will make you represent his son. Should you do those things and hold fast to the faith, not wavering in any way, God will sanctify you. It is not a question of if he will do it. He will do it. In this lifetime, he will sanctify us. And when he comes and we see him as he is and we look at him with unveiled face, we will be immediately and perfectly transformed into the image we were always meant to be. I want to end with a benediction from Ephesians chapter 3. And then one quick story about Heidi. Ephesians chapter 3 says this, Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, 
To him be the glory in the church in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. What is the picture John is describing? What is the image? I was in chapel this week with Heidi and she was standing on a chair and we were singing in English, which was great. And Heidi is kind of holding, I've got my arm out like this and she's kind of holding onto my arm with one hand and I recognize that she sort of like loses her balance. And she grabs onto my arm real tight and kind of like pulls me, right? And I just look over at Heidi and I just smile. And she looks up at me like I did something wrong. No. And he just looked at her and I just just smiled. You do what you do when a four-year-old loses their balance. You're like, you okay? Yeah, you're all right. She smiles and I smile and we just focus ahead. You imagine what it would have been like if I would have been like, idiot like why'd you fall don't fall it just doesn't make any sense that would be a betrayal of the position that is how christ is to us we're the child he's the one on two feet he's the one who's got the strength to stand he's the one who can do all that we need him to do he's the one who's shown in the darkness here's the idea that in our darkest hour Christ Jesus did not waver. If you would, take communion. Hold it in your hands. This is something that the church has been doing from the beginning. When Christ met with those disciples in that upper room and they had Passover, he said, listen, I want you to do this. And he took the bread, and you can do this as I speak. He took the bread, and he said, this is my body given up for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup, and after blessing it, he said, this is my blood given to you. Let us drink. It is our deepest desire as believers that we would properly bear the image of our Savior. And when we do this and we gather together and we remember Christ's sacrifice and we participate in his identity and we are fundamentally saying, I will be with you and I would rather be found nowhere else. I pray that is an encouragement to you. Will you stand and worship with me?